Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you have done for us. God, I thank you that you have purchased us, that you have redeemed us, that you have reconciled us. You have taken us, enemies of God, children of wrath, living in darkness, and you have made us your children. You have brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light, and you love us. Lord, and it's just overwhelming just to think that who are we that you are mindful of us? And how great is your love that you have lavished upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is who we are. And Lord, I thank you for that. And I pray that that reality, that truth, was set in deep into our hearts. Lord, I pray today that as we open up your word, as we look at who you are, well, can you make yourself known? Can you stir our hearts and our affections for you? Can you help us just to simply be in awe of you as we look to you? As we see you being disclosed in scripture and being made known as the all-powerful God and that when you make yourself known, the earth trembles and the mountains shake and the rocks shatter. And so Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict us I pray that this word would pierce into our hearts, that it would drive us to our knees, that we would take refuge in the cross as we cling to you. So please, Lord, speak to us now. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. Um, If you're new here, we're so excited that you've decided to worship with us. Uh, There's a connection card in the seat in front of you. If you can please fill that out, and then on your way um, after the service, you can just drop them off in the drop boxes. And all we want to do is either shoot you an email or give you a call and see how we can minister to you um, and pray for you. But if you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Nahum as we're continuing our series through the book of Nahum. Uh, So let's look at uh, Nahum chapter chapter 1, verse 1. And so here's why we picked this book, and here's my hope for us um, in this series. It's a, it's a twofold uh, a hope. Uh, the, the first part of what I desire for us and hope for us is that as we see the goodness, the patience, the power, the holiness, and the justice of the living God in our text, that it will bring us ultimate comfort knowing that evil will not prevail that God will come and make all things new and that every wrong in the world will be made right. And so for that, that should bring us comfort, especially as we look at everything that is going on. Uh, But then my second hope for us is that as we see the wrath of God and the judgment of God in our text, that in a way it will devastate us that it will devastate us as we look at the reality and the severity of the judgment and that would force us just to throw ourselves at the mercy of God, looking to Christ and say, God, have mercy upon our souls. Now, last week as we kind of read through Nahum, set the table for Nahum and looked at the first book, uh, uh, the first verse in Nahum, we said that Nahum is primarily a book of hope and comfort. 
Because Nahum, the Hebrew word Nahum literally means comfort. And so, yes, this book is a book of hope. It is a book of comfort to those who've been victimized and those who've been oppressed. But it's also a book of warning to those who are oppressing others or associated to oppressing others. And so here's the challenge for us when we read the book of Nahum. The challenge for us is we have a tendency to kind of want to distance ourselves from the judgment of God, thinking the judgment is not coming towards us, but rather as we look at Nahum, we're like, you know what, the judgment was geared towards the Ninevites, or the judgment is geared towards those people. The judgment is not coming towards us. That's the challenge. And so what we need to do is rather than distance ourselves from the judgment of God, rather we need to look at the reality of it as judgment is coming towards us. And it's only when we understand that and bridge the gap of God's judgment coming towards us that this text will serve its purpose and force us to throw ourselves at the mercy of God, where we look to him and long for him and point us to our need for Jesus. Now, in verse 1, we discover that Nahum has been given an oracle. It's a burden that directly comes from God and that he wrote it down. So in other words, the very first verse tells us that this word is from God. It was written down. It is a divine revelation from God for the generations to read that God is faithful in keeping his word. So just as we read Nahum and maybe in the back of your mind thinking this can't be the word of God, Nahum tells us in verse 1, this is from God. It's not just his spoken word but also his written word. It is divine revelation from God so you better listen up. And then he begins in verse 2 with his oracle and he really shocks us. He gets to the heart of the matter and the fact that God is not pleased. Now in our text today we're going to look at verse 2 all the way through verse 7 and there's going to be five declarations of the Lord. So let's look at the the very first declaration in verse 2. It says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. The Lord takes vengeance against his foes. He is furious with his enemies. So so let's stop here. If you're taking notes, here's the very first declaration of the Lord. The very first one is this. If you're taking notes, the Lord is a jealous God. The Lord is a jealous God. Now, now God being jealous is not really something we think of when we think of jealousy. Yet, throughout the Bible, it describes the Lord as a jealous God. So when when the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the Lord described them as a jealous God. And so, so he says in Exodus 20, verse 1 to 5, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. And here, here's the phrase, For I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, bringing the consequences of the Father's iniquity on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate Him. 
Later on in, in, in Exodus, uh, when, is, when the Israelites disobeyed the Ten Commandments and, and Moses was still on the mountain and they haven't seen him in a while, they told Aaron, make us a God because Moses and God has abandoned us. And so he made this golden calf and they worshipped him and bowed down to him. And Moses came down the mountain, broke the two stone tablets, and after the Lord punished them, he said, I'm no longer going with this people. And so Moses is pleading with the Lord, do not... Do not leave us. We need you. And then Moses says, can you show me your face, your glory? And this is what the Lord says in Exodus 34, verse 14. Because the Lord is jealous for his reputation, you are never to bow down to another God. He is a jealous God. Um, It is in Deuteronomy. It's throughout Scripture. And, And here's the point simply I'm wanting to make. The fact that God describes him as a jealous God is not just isolated in the book of Nahum. It's not like a coincidence. This is a weird text. What do we do with this text? But rather describing God as a jealous God is seen throughout Scripture. But here's the question we might have to ask ourselves. What does it mean for the Lord to be a jealous God? So since jealousy has such a, a negative and insecure connotation, like, like what does it mean when the Lord describes himself to be a jealous God? Um, I think a scholar, Tremper Longman, he, he says it well. He says this, God's jealousy does not imply that God is subject to petty suspicion. So in other words, God's jealousy is not because of his insecurity and he's suspicious of people not liking him. Or he's jealous of people having more than him. But rather, his jealousy, this is what he says, demands the exclusive loyalty of his people along the lines of the first and second commandments in the Ten Commandments. Indeed, the second commandment contains the divine self-assertion of jealousy. So this is what it means for the Lord to be a jealous God. He demands exclusive worship. And that demanding of exclusive worship is explicit in God describing himself to be a jealous God. So what does it mean that God is a jealous God? It doesn't mean that he, is, that he has this petty suspicion and is insecure, but rather he demands exclusive worship. Now, to be clear, God is not jealous of his people, but rather he is jealous of for his people. Now, this attribute of God's jealousy comes from the concept of covenant loyalty. In other words, the relationship that God has with his people is one of covenant loyalty and mutual faithfulness, and God will not tolerate covenant disloyalty. When God says that he is a jealous God, he's implying that he alone will be worshiped, He will not share his glory with another, nor will he share his people with anyone. For his people belong to him, and he demands covenant loyalty, and he demands exclusive worship. And so when God is jealous for his people, when they violate their covenant loyalty to him, he's also jealous for his people when others attack his covenant people. And so unlike human jealousy that's really rooted in insecurity, God's jealousy is grounded in himself. The the, the word jealousy can also mean possession, which means 
that God is rightly jealous because everything and everyone belongs to him. His people belong to him. How do we know that? Because he made them. He bought them. He purchased them. He delivered them. And when they pretend they don't belong to him, God is jealous because that brings up covenant disloyalty. And when others abuse his people, God is jealous because it is a personal attack on him. And what we see in verse 2 is that the jealousy of God leads to the vengeance of God, not just against his covenant people that are disloyal to him, but also against those who attack his covenant people. Look at the second declaration in verse 2. It says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. So the second declaration of the Lord is not only is he a jealous God, but he's also an avenging God. Now this term vengeance is used three times in verse 2. Let's read the whole verse 2 again. It says, the Lord is a jealous God, an avenging God. That's the very first part of time the avenging appears. Second part of verse 2 says this, the Lord takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath. In other words, this expression filled or fierce in wrath means that God has mastered wrath. So in other words, God is not just filled with wrath instead of wrath is overtaking him, but rather the literal meaning is God has mastered the art of wrath. Wrath does not master him, but rather God has mastered wrath to accomplish his purpose. So when it says the Lord is an avenging God, he takes vengeance and is fierce in wrath or filled in wrath. It doesn't mean he's out of control with wrath, but rather he controls wrath to accomplish his purpose. Verse 2 says this, the Lord takes vengeance against his foes and he's furious with his enemies. Who does he take vengeance on? His enemies. Those who are hostile towards him. Those who are personally antagonistic towards him and his people. Now, in the context of Nahum, it implies that the Lord takes Nineveh's endless cruelty against his people as a personal attack on him. And so in the context of Nahum, who, is the foe, who are the foes of God, the enemies of God? It's the Ninevites. And the Lord, who is jealous for his people, is an avenging God, has mastered wrath, and uses wrath to accomplish his purpose. And in Nahum, we learn how does the Lord treat his enemies? He takes vengeance, and he's filled with wrath against his enemies. Now, again, we read this, and we're saying, oh, the enemies of God is the Ninevites. But think about this. Who are the enemies of God? Technically, all of us before Jesus Christ. Because the Bible describes us in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, as enemies of God, hostile towards God. God created us, God owned us, God demands exclusive worship of Him. And what have we done? We have refused to acknowledge Him, 
We have refused to submit to his authority. We have denied him and pretended he did not exist. And what does the text say? How does the Lord deal with his enemies? He takes vengeance and he's filled with wrath. Now, we might be confused with this vengeance language in Nahum. Because we read it in Nahum, and yet what does Jesus say how to treat our enemies? Jesus says, how do you treat your enemies? Love your enemies. Pray for your enemies. And so here's the problem we might have. The the problem is, okay, is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? Or is God just a hypocrite where he does not follow his own counsel? Where he tells us, you know what? You love your enemies, I'll pour my wrath on my enemies. And yet it seems like Paul in the New Testament doesn't have an issue with it because he clearly understands who we are and who God is. And the reason why I use a New Testament text is to show you the vengeance of God is not just in the Old Testament, but is also in the New Testament. Thus, God has not changed. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 19 to 21. He says, friends, do not avenge yourself. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. That, that, that's in the New Testament. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So does God not follow his own counsel? The reason why God can exercise vengeance because he is God and we are not. Here's the difference. When we exercise vengeance, what consume us? Our very own wrath. And so in our wrath, when we take out vengeance, not not only does it destroy our enemy, but it also destroys us. Because we, who are filled with wrath, are mastered by wrath. And yet God who is filled with wrath, is not mastered by wrath, but masterfully uses wrath on his enemies to display his purpose without being consumed by it. That is the difference. But now, just when you think, man, this is an angry God. Not only is he jealous, not only is he vengeful, not only is he furious with his enemies, Look at the third declaration in verse 3. It says this, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. So here's the third declaration, is that the Lord is slow to anger. So just when you think that God is an angry God, He reveals to us, no. He is slow to anger. Now, how was he slow to anger towards these Ninevites? Now, now, now think about it. We're all familiar with the story, how God was patient towards the Ninevites, reflected in the ministry of Jonah. Okay, so what happened? The Lord told Jonah to go to Nineveh and to tell them that judgment was coming. Jonah says, I'm not going to Nineveh. Because if I tell them judgment is coming, they might repent and you might spare them. And in Jonah's mind, he thought God was wrong. 
God should not spare these Ninevites because they are an evil people that deserve to be destroyed. So Jonah went the other direction. And God in his mercy and his grace got Jonah's attention, brought them back on target, and Jonah brought the word of God and said, Repent, for judgment is coming. And what happened? The entire city repented. And sackcloth and ashes declared a fast. And God relented from his judgment. And how did Jonah respond? Jonah was absolutely furious. He was mad at God and said, See God, I knew this was going to happen. I knew you were going to spare these people. They don't deserve to be spared. Have you seen the cruelty? Have you seen all the injustice? Have you seen all the evil things they have done? How dare you spare them? Fast forward a hundred years later, Nahum appears on the scene. So how patient was the Lord with, with the Assyrians, with the Ninevites? Well, over a hundred years. And Nahum appears on the scene and say, The Lord is slow to anger, but your time is up. But notice also verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is very similar to the words that the Lord disclosed to Moses when he revealed some of his glory to Moses. In Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but will not leave the guilty unpunished. Very similar. Nahum is just more condensed, but both are portraying the same thing. The Lord is slow to anger, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And what does it mean for the Lord to be slow in anger? It means the Lord is gracious. He exercises divine patience long before he executes divine Judgment, And when it says that the Lord is slow to anger towards his enemies, it shows us how the Lord is gracious. And even in the New Testament, Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 9, it says, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and one thousand years is like one day. The Lord does not delay in his promises, as some understand delay, but is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but all come to repentance. In other words, Peter's point is the reason why judgment has not come, the reason why God has not made all things new, the reason why God has not brought judgment and poured out His wrath on the world, destroying and making new, is because the Lord is slow to anger. And part of the good news is that God is slow to execute divine judgment against his enemies, against sinners, in order that they may do what? Repent of their sins. And Peter is warning us, do not mistake the patience of God with weakness or forgetfulness. God is not twiddling his thumbs wondering, should I do it right now? How should I deal with it? No. The Lord is patient. He is not weak. He does not forget. 
And as the Lord is slow to anger, verse 3 tells us, He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And again, who's the guilty? In our text, it's the Ninevites. But in the reality, who is it? It's us. We've been defying God. And God has not poured His wrath out on us because He is slow to anger. Look, look at the fourth declaration in verse 3 again. It says, The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. His path is in the whirlwind and storm, and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up, and He makes all the rivers run dry, Bashan and Carmel wither. Even the flower of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills mount. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Even rocks are shattered before him. So just when you think that the Lord is an angry God, he reveals to us, no, he's slow to anger. And just when you think, you know what? Maybe he's slow to anger because he might be weak and forgetful. Nahum says, no, he is great in power. And so your fourth declaration is the Lord is great in power. And I love this. And if you for a moment might doubt the great and awesome power Look at how the prophets describes the power of God in a language that we as humans can understand. It's called a theopony, a manifestation of God in terms that we can understand. Look, look at verse, the second part of verse 3. Look at how he describes the power of God. He says, His path is in the whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust beneath His feet. So in this description of the manifestation of God, he begins with the highest elevation to the lowest in his description. The very first thing he says about God's power is that God controls the wind and the storm and the clouds. You know what a tornado can do. You know what a hurricane can do. You know what a severe wind can do. And who controls all of it? The Lord. The Assyrians might control the ancient Near East, but the Lord controls the storm. He controls the wind, the water, and the clouds. No one can match the power of God. In other words, Nahum's point is this, that the Assyrians ought to fear the divine judgment of God because he is all-powerful, and the tools at God's disposal is limitless. He can deploy the phenomena of weather to accomplish his judgment on sinners. But not only does he control the wind and the storm and the clouds. Look at verse 4. He rebukes the sea and, he dry, and it dries up. And he makes all the rivers run dry. Like think about the mighty ocean. With a single word it dries up. The mighty rivers... It dries up, and its effect is felt everywhere. 
This is why he says Bashan and Carmel, who's situated next to the rivers, even they feel the effect. In other words, he, he says the flowers of Lebanon weathers. Here, here's the point that Nahum is trying to make. You cannot mistake the judgment of God. When the judgment of God is coming, everybody will notice it. It's not like, a, oh, I don't know what happened. It's where's the sea? Where's the river? These mighty nations that were flourishing are withering. And this is for sure that when God comes in his divine judgment, everyone will know it. We even see this in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him. And all the families of the earth will mourn over him. And so not only does the Lord control the atmosphere and the hydrosphere, it's at his disposal. But then also the earth. Look, look at verse 5. The mountains quake before him, and the hills mount. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Think about Everest, just melting. Think about the mighty mountains quaking and the earth trembling. Just at the presence of God. Not even him doing anything. Just at his very presence. And then Nahum brings up the, 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 this question, this rhetorical question that at the Lord's judgment, at the Lord's wrath, he says in verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his burning anger? And you know what the answer is? No one. And this prophetic language would have been understood by these kingdoms like Assyria. Their thirst for international dominance was unquestionable, and only an awesome God with all his power could stop these imperial forces. And no matter how big they became, no matter how powerful they became, they are unmatched compared to the God who controls everything. So now the Lord reveals himself in his declarations as jealous, avenging, and you're thinking, well, maybe he has anger issues, but now you learn he's slow to anger and all-powerful. But now we're kind of teeter-tottering. Is this God a good God or is he an evil God? And then verse 7 tells us this. Look at the, the last declaration. The Lord is good a stronghold in a day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And his final declaration answers this question. The Lord is not evil. The Lord is good. He has not forgotten his people. And in his goodness, he becomes a stronghold, a fortress, to those who take refuge in him in times of trouble. And this is why the psalmist says, Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, all those who take refuge in him are happy. Psalm 9, verse 9 says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. So, so we're done with the text. Let's talk about application. What do we do with the declarations of the Lord? We know he is jealous, 
We know he is vengeful. We know that he is slow to anger. We know that he is mighty in power. And we also know he is good. What do we do with that? How do we respond to that? And my hope is to give you more than just intellectual information. Huh, I didn't know that about God. That, that, that's very interesting. But this is what I find interesting. I'm going to take a while to make my point, so be patient with me. But the question that I want to answer is how do we respond to these five declarations? Here's what I find interesting. In, in the Garden of Eden, when God created everything, he created everything good, and then he created man to take dominion of the earth. And Adam and Eve walked in intimate relationship with the Lord. There was close fellowship. And so implied that when the Lord walked in the garden, in the cool of the day, during the evening breeze, when Adam and Eve would normally hear God walk in the garden, they would run towards God and walk in fellowship with Him. And maybe that was their daily routine. But then when they sinned, and they heard the, wa- the Lord walking during the evening breeze, the cool of the day. What did they do? They hid in the trees. They hid in the garden. And that caused the Lord to call out for them. And so that's why my conclusion was, because the Lord called out for them, He knew that normally they would run towards Him, but this time they are running away from Him. They are hiding. And we see these two responses of in the garden, it starts with man running towards him. And because of sin, man now running away from him. Let's fast forward and go to Revelation judgment, the wrath of God. We see in the scripture these two responses. When the Lord returns in the clouds, to pour out his wrath and to bring judgment and to make all things new and every wrong in the world right, we see two responses. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, there will be those that will meet him in the air to be with him. So when the Lord appears in the clouds to bring judgment, to pour out his wrath, there are some who belong to Christ. We will meet him in the air and say, Come, Lord Jesus, and make all things new in a sense running towards him but then when the lord's judgment is coming there are some that'll be running away from him we see this in revelation chapter 6 verse 15 to 16 then the kings of the earth the nobles the generals the rich the powerful and you're thinking oh it's them not us and then he says And every slave and every free person, a.k.a. all of us, will hide in the caves among the rocks and the mountains. And we will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. What are those people doing? They're hiding. They're running away because they're saying the wrath has come. Now, when you think about judgment, Nahum, it's a book of comfort and hope and a book of warning. And the judgment of God is kind of like a double-edged sword. It divides people. 
On the one hand of God's judgment, it brings comfort to those who take refuge in him because it reminds us that evil will not prevail, that the Lord is going to make every wrong in the world right. So in a sense, we're saying, come Lord Jesus and judge the earth. But then on the other side, the judgment of God causes people also to run away in dreadful fear, knowing their time is up and the wrath of God has come. So again, we see the running to and running away in the Garden of Eden. And when the Lord returns in the clouds, we see the running to and the running away. What do we do with the declarations of God? We run towards him. We take refuge in him. But here's the problem. We're guilty. He cannot let the guilty go unpunished. So what do we do? And this is why when we run to him, we take refuge in the cross of Christ. And so, so here, here's my application. What do we do with the declarations of the Lord that the Lord is a jealous God, an avenging God, a slow-to-anger God, an all-powerful God, a good God? You take refuge in the cross of Christ. That is the only way you can be spared from the wrath and the judgment of God. Because it's at the cross where this great exchange took place, where Jesus satisfied the wrath of God, the judgment that was geared towards us. And in this great exchange, it was His righteous life for my sinfulness. And His work on the cross was finished. He exchanged His life for mine. He bought us with His precious blood. And the only way that I can be spared from the wrath and judgment of God is taking refuge in the cross of Christ. Running towards Him. Clinging to that cross for dear life. Hoping and trusting that God is good and God is faithful and God will spare me from his wrath and judgment because Jesus has already satisfied his wrath and judgment that was geared towards me. But the question is, okay, how do I take refuge in the cross of Christ? And the only way to take refuge in the cross of Christ is through faith. And repenting. As I am repenting constantly, daily of my sins, turning away from it, turning towards Him, and in faith believing that what Christ has done for me is sufficient, that the wrath of God has been satisfied, that there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ. It is me actively clinging to that cross, knowing that judgment is coming. And so here's the warning. This might be an extreme message, but here's the reality of it. Wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. There is no escaping it. 
Do not mistake this God being slow to anger of being weak and forgetful. He is patient with you, gracious with you, calling you to repent, to trust Him and stop running away from Him and start running towards Him. Do not be like the Ninevites where it was too late. There was no more turning there was only hiding. And I think this is where the table helps us. The table, in a sense, represents the cross of Christ. What the cross, Jesus has done for us on the cross. Now, part of it, and I've heard people say this, I don't know if I like taking communion every week, um, because I might have sinned against somebody and I don't feel like worthy of taking communion. So what does this table actually force you to do? It forces you to confess your sins and repent. What can be any better than that? If you're not going to do it on your own, let the table help you to confess and to repent. I don't think it's a righteous thing to abstain from communion because you refuse to repent and confess. I think it's a wicked thing. But what the table is telling you to do is no, confess, repent. And what's the promise? There will be forgiveness. You can sit at this table, not because you've confessed and repent, but because forgiveness has been readily be made available to you. And it is an act of faith that you're taking these elements, knowing that there is forgiveness, knowing that the Lord accepts you as sons and daughters of the King, not because you did anything, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And so this is almost, I want you today to see this as a symbol of taking refuge at the cross. Wrath is coming Judgment is coming. Take refuge in the cross of Christ. A.K.A. you better run to that table and you better cling to that cross. Cling to those elements. Believing Jesus' body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. The wrath of God has been satisfied for me. And there's only two responses. It's either running towards or running away. There is no standing still. There's no middle. It's either accepting and believing or rejecting. And so as I'm praying for us, I, I want you to reflect as you confess your sins, as you repent, as you run and uh, uh, um, hypothetically or symbolically, don't literally run to the table cling. This doesn't mean anything. But in your, your mind, you're running and you're clinging to these as you're taking refuge in the cross from the wrath of God, thanking him for his body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll distribute these elements. Our Holy Father, Lord, I am so grateful that we can take refuge in you. And even though technically we are guilty, we are enemies, we are your foes, and you are angry, and you are fierce in wrath, and you will rightfully destroy all those who oppose you. Somehow, 
in a scandalous grace. You've taken us as enemies and you've turned us into your children. You have redeemed us. You have forgiven us. And it's not because we turned our life around. It's not because we were better. It's all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And Lord, I pray that that we will never forget. Lord, I pray that we would take this warning serious, that wrath is coming, judgment is coming. And it it is fierce. It is devastating. It destroys everything. The effects are everywhere. And everyone will know when it comes. May we as your people take refuge in you. And may we be spared because of what Jesus has done for us is enough. And Lord, as we hand out these elements, as, as we reflect, may, may we repent of our sins. May we confess our sins. May we confess you as our Lord and Savior. And may we cling to your cross, knowing that there is forgiveness. Knowing that, Jesus, you've satisfied God's wrath. There is mercy and grace. There is no condemnation. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God, our Holy Father, you are a consuming fire. And you did not consume us, but yet you have acted in Christ to save us. You have declared us to be righteous. You have washed away our sins through your blood, Lord Jesus, and you have made us new. And Lord, my my prayer for us is that we would constantly cling to the cross, that we'll constantly be reminded that we are unworthy and yet you've made us worthy. We were unrighteous, and yet you've declared us righteous. We were enemies of God, and yet you have acted and made us children of God. And Lord, every day may we repent of our sins and in faith cling to the cross. Lord, help us to stop looking to ourselves and look to you. Let us take the warning of your wrath and your judgment series, knowing it is coming and no one will be able to escape it and everyone will know when it comes. And the only place for refuge is at the cross of Christ. And may we flee and may we cling to it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and let us worship our King.